You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles and turn to James, James chapter 1. Lord willing, we'll look at verses 22 through 25. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, Bible, God's Word in front of you, you've got a couple of options uh, inside your bulletin. Uh, there is uh, some notes with the scriptures written, however... I literally noticed uh, after they're like in print mode that I missed one verse. <laughs> so you got, you're missing verse 22 in the written notes. Um, but you can also, if you have a smartphone and you've downloaded the Version Bible app, that's Y-O-U version. Uh, you can go to the More Tab Tap events, found my, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church, click on today's sermon title, and all those uh, notes, quotes, and references will be uh, there on your phone. So you can use those. Um, and then also, I thought to mention this at the beginning, I, I keep forgetting. Uh, you can actually text BULLETIN uh, to 706-525-5351. That's our uh, texting church number. And you can receive a link to receive the bulletin uh, digitally online. Uh, and so I encourage you, if you haven't done that already, please be sure to save the link. You won't get another text message back. Um, but save the link, and that's a static link, and we just update the link uh, every every time, every week. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. We're looking at part 2 of just a short mini-series in this section of James, and I've entitled the series The Looking Glass, and you'll see why today. And this is part 2, and in light of uh, recent events, I, I just entitled this Ravi. Ravi. Last week, Uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries released a 12-page report about its founder and namesake. And it confirmed, quote, abuse by Zacharias at day spas he owned in Atlanta and and uncovers five additional victims in the U.S. as as, as well as evidence of sexual abuse in Thailand, India, and Malaysia. Now, if you've heard Robbie Zacharias ever speak or teach or preach, uh, one of the most articulate and engaging speakers uh, that I may have heard in my lifetime. Um, And what's so difficult about it is how does a person, and I've gotten this question from several of you, how can a person be so well-versed and conversant in scriptures and Christian philosophy and worldview uh, in the Bible itself and be able to do something like what Robbie did. How is it possible? Um, and And I really believe that the text that we're looking at today shows how it's categorically possible. Uh, and that is not to give him an out for this. Uh, but I want to at least help us understand it biblically and then maybe some things that we can do in hopes of preventing 
uh, those same things in our own lives. So let's look and see what it says. In this section of the epistle of James, James, this is Jesus' half-brother, shifts from instructions about life difficulties. We talked about being under pressure of trials and temptations. And now he's moved into a new section in his letter to pragmatic folks, practical things you can do, and the implications of your faith in Jesus. So how to live out your faith in the Son of God. Uh, And James reminds us, this was in verse 19, that a wise person will learn to control anger and eliminate one of the most common sources of hateful speech, all right? But there's another part that we haven't explored yet in that chain of command that we see in verse 19 is that James introduces a command to, quote, be quick to listen. And now, in this kind of subsection of this, par- uh, of this section, this subparagraph, he's going to unpack, I believe, what it means to be quick to listen. Quick to listen. So how can we be quick to listen? And then near the end of today's sermon, I'll apply that uh, to Robbie's situation and how we should respond. It says this in verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror for he looks at himself goes away and immediately forgets what kind of person he was but the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom or liberty and perseveres in it And is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works. This person will be blessed in what he does. How can we be quick to listen? Just notice the simple command. James likes to give the command first and then explain the rationale. Okay, Instead of giving you premise one, premise two, therefore do this. He says, this is what I want you to do. And then I'll tell you why. And his command is, don't just hear God's word. Don't just hear what's about to be preached to you today. He's saying this, actually go out and put it into practice. Do it. All right? And it's a lot easier heard than done, is it not? In the biblical world, most people would only have heard the scriptures. Now, let me just sit you into James context for just a minute in the first century in which he writes this there are no there's no written new testament you understand that right you have the old testament scriptures that are recorded and those copies are available all right it's important to understand that but the proclamation of jesus from the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and teachers that were throughout the Roman Empire in the first century, establishing Jesus' church, they have not yet written down their accounts and some of the letters to these local churches that they're establishing. So it's so important. I need you to catch this, church. When we talk about hearing the Scriptures, everything was invested into the time when the saints gathered to hear what the preacher had to say because that's all they had. Everybody get that? Now, why that's important is because of how we'll apply it to our lives today. Now that the Word of God is finished and canonized, we have... You want to hear the Apostle? You want to hear the Apostle Paul today? Open up your Bible. 
Read it out. You have his words inspired by the Holy Spirit. The apostles are still proclaiming the gospel today. The evangelists, the prophets, the old elders and teachers of the first church, they're still teaching us what? Through the written word of God. And so we preach and proclaim the Bible. If you want to hear God's word, you're going to have to hear from the Bible. It's important to note that. But that also, here's what, that gives us one advantage over them that they don't have. Church, and I was actually talking about it with Brother Matt today. Because the scriptures are finished and canonized, written down. And now we have this new wave of technology and information that makes this, I mean, unbelievably accessible. You've got more commentaries on this book than ever before within your pocket if you have a smart device. The point what I'm trying to say is this. You're, you're not. You don't just have an opportunity to observe absorb God's word when you've just gathered with the church on a Sunday morning like they did in the, in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. You are literally surrounded by a cloud of witnesses of the Scripture every single day. And so I want you to note that because that's going to be a part of it in a minute. We're not just, I don't believe this Bible is just talking about, this verse is talking about just when we've gathered together to hear the scriptures preached. Because all I want you to understand is that's the only way they would have heard Jesus or or seen Jesus preached. You have access to a Christological, Christ-centered understanding of the scriptures at any given moment now. And I think that makes us equally culpable and responsible for the weight of what we have available to us. So just think about it. James here commands an aspect that was assumed but not always realized. Putting the spoken word into action. We understand that. We're sympathetic with that. We've all sat there, heard a sermon, read a devotional, went to Sunday school, heard the truth of God and walked out completely unimpressed and unaffected. That happens. And he asked his audience to go the next step, to be doers or performers or practicers of the law, practitioners. These people do not merely hear the message of salvation, but put their faith into practice. And please understand this. This is where we swing the pendulum too far. Is people make audacious statements like this, like, I would rather have action than knowledge. Well, that's just stupid, okay? You can't live out of faith you don't know. So you do have to know the word of God. You do have to. You do have to hear. You do have to listen. You do have to show up. But to do all of that and then not put it into practice is absurd. That's what James is saying. So he's not condemning. Some people read these texts and condemns hearing and study and listening. Mm Mm-mm. It's implied in James' argument here. You should. You ought to. But you've got to go one more step for it to make a complete uh, cycle here. Hearing and doing. You want to know what quick listening is? You want to know what it means to be hurried up to listen? Is listen and do it. Listen and do it. Hearing and doing is quick listening. But James is aware of sinful nature. He's aware of that that evil pollution that's in our hearts that twist if pervert desire. And he is aware 
of our ability to hear words and let them slip right through without it ever affecting our life. You might be doing it right now. Religious self-deception occurs when people can be mistaken in thinking. And this is what I think it kind of just starts with. He's not talking about me. Church, I, I keep saying this over and over again. When we make statements about human nature, I'm talking about every single one of us. I'm not picking like a few bad apples. I keep telling you, we're all that way. So if you ever, this is one of the things, I, I saw this growing up some, and, and if you've ever said it here, I'll be a little upset, but I get it. Is, you know, I'm just not being fed anymore by the pastor or the preacher. I'm going to look somewhere else. I think that's highly delusional. And the reason being is this, unless that pastor is not preaching God's word, this book always addresses your most significant problem, which is sin. I do not believe you can sit under the preaching of the scriptures and go, this is irrelevant. I want you to think about this. It is only delusional to sit under the scriptures and go, that must be about somebody else. It was written for your instruction. I mean yours. So not to allow what you learn in the gospel to drive you to obedience proves that you've deceived yourself. You've deceived yourself. All right? Such sham religion has devastating consequences for one's eternal destiny. To just, to, to just apply this one moment to Ravi. All right? I do want you to understand, I believe it's completely possible, and this is the danger for myself or anybody who, who oversees the teaching of the Word of God, it is possible to be highly articulate, okay? To know the Bible well, to, to hear it well, to even speak it well, and that not necessarily like relate into spiritual transformation. It's possible, all right? The other part that I want you to understand, it's possible not because of the ineffectiveness or the lack of performance from God's word, but because we can sit there and say this to ourselves, that's not me. That's not me. And what we have to come to grips with every time we're under the word of God, even when it's something we're, quote, not dealing with right now, because I found this to be true. I found this to be true. When I preach the word of God, there are certain people on certain days that they're like, that's applicable, but not necessarily to my life right now as I feel it. All right? And there's certain people that under the same sermon where somebody was like completely unaffected, there's another person that's just shaking their world apart. And what we don't realize is this. You may be going through different things, but human nature is the same. We all share this human heart that the scripture addresses. So even when you go like, like last week, I'm talking about anger. You go, I'm not an angry person. Not right now, maybe. <laughs> you see how that works? Given the right circumstances and situation, you will be. Or you have been. So there's not a point in which you can open up this book. I, the more and more, the older I get, the more I, I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Just open up a passage. It's about your sin. And it's about Jesus as our Savior. And I mean you. If you're listening to me, I'm talking about you. You go, do, I, do, do you have something out for me? No, I just believe the Word of God. I like what I read from Spurgeon this week. There's no words you can use to demean human nature enough. I mean, it's the truth. 
All right? That's what we all share. And then James gives us this wonderful comparison. He compares the word of God to a looking glass or a mirror. Now, the best mirrors of that day was this Corinthian bronze. It's important that we put ourselves back in the first century shiz. But no mirrors of that period would have produced the accurate images we have available today. I mean, let's just be honest. If you've got one of these, you've used it as a mirror at least one time. All right? But just think about in our age, this is what I find absolutely fascinating. Think about how surrounded by our own image we are. Like, it's really impossible to go a day in 21st century and not see yourself, right? I mean, even when I got in the car to get over here, what did I do? I I adjusted my mirror. I got one there. I can see myself in the reflection. I literally, like, walking up to church like, man, that weight is coming back again, right? I mean, it's a constant, you're under constant self-reflection. And what we have to put ourselves back in is, remember, this type of mirror where you can magnify things six to a hundred degrees, right? I mean, just unbelievable. That type of reflection and magnification were not available in the first century. Now, why is that important? Because it makes sense of this vernacular of looking intently. Because even when you got a mirror back in that time, it wasn't going to give you everything you wanted to see immediately. What did you have to do? You had to study that mirror. You see how that works? I'm going to look real hard, real close to what's going on. And so people closely examined their faces when they got a chance to sit in front of a mirror. Now, have you picked up yet on what that means for us when we sit in front of the Word of God? We get a chance to see what God sees. That's what we're looking at. You how, how, think about it now. Yeah, yeah, we walk past the mirror now. We have, this is a chance to, right? There's two faults about what kind of people are looking at this mirror, in, the commentators say. One are, one's the group that can't, that, that can afford mirrors. Remember, James is talking about a group that's really divided socio-politically. All right, or socioeconomically. You've got very rich people, very poor people that comprise the Christian congregations that he's talking to. And the rich folks that were there more than likely would have, could have afforded mirrors. They had them in their homes. It may have been really, really, really nice polished. And what that meant is they would have looked at those mirrors and they would have had a remedial intent. They would be looking for something. Where they go, you know, there's a blemish here. My hair's crazy. I slept on it wrong last night. Whatever it is. And then they would go and fix it. Using, notice it's important. You don't fix yourself with the mirror. Okay? You got to look to something else. The other scenario is what commentators about, or the poor who would have rarely gotten a chance to hold a mirror. Now think about this. And I, th- I tend to think he's, he's, he's highlighting them. Say one day they stumble upon it and they get to have a mirror, right? They see a mirror and they go in this. They're seeing themselves almost for the first time. Have you ever caught like your dog or even your child, like a young one, who saw themselves for the first time? They got it. Like, wait a minute. There's not another dog in this house, <laughs> right? Or Haddon sits there and he'll look and you get all the smudges on the bottom third of the, the, the mirror, right? He's figuring out, this, is this me? 
But isn't it possible, and what he's trying to highlight is the absurdity of this, but you take those dog or that little kid and you remove them from that mirror and it's like they have to go through that whole process over again when they see themselves again, right? Because they haven't seen the permanence. That's who I am. Always that's who I am. And so what he's in reference to, it could be this, and I tend to think this way, is the person, it's not just about remedial action that's like, oh, I have a blemish, I ought to do something about it. It's the person who actually sees themselves for the first time in the mirror. And as one commentator said, could then not go and pick themselves out of a lineup. Themselves. That's how clueless they are about their identity. Now let me tell you about this. How does that work when it comes to the Bible? This is good. This is probably worth the price of admission this morning. Think of it like this. How many times... Have we went to the word of God, not just for remedial action, to find who we, what things are wrong with us, but I think it goes even further, is the Bible tells us who we are. It's different. See, guys, we're not in need of just somebody to take care of the blemishes. You see how this works? It actually is telling you that fundamentally you are a sinner. That's what it's telling you fundamentally. That's what you have to speak. You're supposed to read the word of God, hear the word of God, and come to the conclusion, I am a great sinner. But what does human nature do? We, we may come to that conclusion, and then we go out and we're surprised that we're like great sinners. You're a great sinner. But the scripture also does one more thing, and, and, and James is going to highlight this too. The scriptures, if, all, if heard rightly in order to do, all right, if looked into the right way, they should reveal who you are, and also they do this, they reveal your Savior. That's what's important, because what I'm trying to get you, there's nothing you can do to fix what you see in this mirror. I need you to know that. There's not, a, there's not enough right living you can do to make up for all the blemishes. You're looking at a dead man in the Scriptures. That's what they say we are, spiritually dead. And the mirror only just tells you, it looks like you're going to have to go and find somebody else. You don't use a mirror to fix yourself up, do you? No. You got to get a comb. You got to find some soap. And in the same way, what the scriptures ultimately do, this is what's so amazing, is the scriptures ultimately point us to another person. It reminds you, you are a great sinner, and at the same time reminds you, Jesus is a great Savior. Please, church, I'm begging you, don't forget who you are. Not just these, I think it's, I actually think it's uh, arrogant to think, well, I just go to the Word to find some issues with my anger. It's much deeper than that. It's about your identity. The mirror of the Word shows us our sin but even more it reveals the righteousness and the matchlessness of Jesus however someone who leaves that perfect image by not living a righteous life as taught in the word turns away from righteousness remember church it is necessary to do good works that does not mean that we merit grace by doing good works but because it is God's will 
So how can we be quick to listen? James gives us some real easy steps. Number one, write it down. All right, here we go. How can we be quick to listen? Listen quickly. Number one, look into God's word. It starts there. Okay, you have to look into God's word. And I mean the scriptures, the Bible. That's the source of the truth that we're to live out. That's our faith. It's contained in here. As early as this letter is, uh, and the more Jewish James's communities are, it's probably a predominantly Jewish congregations that he's writing to, the more likely the Hebrew scriptures is what forms an integral part of God's word. So when he talks about the word, he means the Old Testament. It is included. Okay? However, he'll see it, you'll see him reference it as the perfect law of freedom or liberty. And I believe that connotation takes it a little further than just the Old Testament. And let me explain. David's defines the law of liberty as the Old Testament ethic as explained and altered by Jesus. I'll get there. It is the Mosaic law now perceived through Jesus' interpretation and supplementation. When we, when we went through our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Don't think that I come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. And this is what's so important. But actually, that word perfect in the Greek there is teleos, which means the end goal. Is that the idea is that the Old Testament scriptures are types and shadows of Jesus. He is the substance. You can think of it this way. That, that I like to say it this way. Jesus is the embodiment of the Bible. So to read the Bible and then not arrive at Jesus is to miss the, the complete point of the Bible. I mean, he is the walking, living word. Okay? So what we're saying is this, is we don't read the Old Testament without looking at it from this Jesus lens. I think you should do both. You need to look what it looks like without Jesus, all right? And then answer the question, well, what does this mean since Jesus has come? It's come to completion. And there's a couple of significant things that happen because of Jesus' advent, his coming, and his establishing of the new covenant. Uh, Douglas Moo, in his commentary, he puts it this way. The addition of the word perfect connotes that the law is eschatological. Now, what I mean by that, we talk about this, eschatological is future. Okay? That the law of God has reached its end, its perfect end. Okay? And it has to do with Jesus. While the qualification that gives freedom refers to the new covenant promise of the law written on their heart, I'll explain, and accompanied by a work of the Spirit enabling obedience to the law for the first time. Remember, here's what's different about Jesus' law, the law of Christ as opposed to the Mosaic law, is along with Jesus Christ and his law, this is important, is it's not just a rehashing of the Mosaic law. There's parts of it that are literally just said over again in the law of Christ. Do not murder, all right? There's nothing new there. The difference is in the new covenant. He writes that on our hearts, and that's not meant so that we forget it, but it's this. He gives us a willingness to obey that, and the Spirit of God helps us to obey that. That's what's significantly different. That's what makes the law of Jesus that, that, that Old Testament interpretation and enablement to do it better or perfect as opposed to the Old Testament. Not that the Old Testament's not Scripture. It's saying it's come to its completion. It's in full effect in a way that it never was before. It's really interesting. 
It's the perfect law of freedom. This is James of ways, uh, James' way of determining or, or, or designating the demands of God mediated through Jesus. That's not just him speaking it, but him empowering you to do it. The liberty here, as many Jewish sources see, is liberty or freedom from sin. The law of God, the law of Christ, sets us free. How does it do that? It drives us to Jesus who alone can free us from sin. And Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, empowers us to do what is pleasing to God. Christian liberty is not lawlessness. Church, I need you to catch that. Many people think we're forgiven so that we can go and do whatever. That is not what the grace of God teaches us to do. It teaches us to deny ungodliness. Okay? So Christian liberty isn't I get to do whatever. Christian liberty is I get to do whatever pleases God. That's the difference. I get to. Because before you could know what pleases God, but had no desire or power to do that. You see how that works? I get to render my members of my body as tools of righteousness. I get to. That's freedom. Okay? It is freedom to do what pleases God. So you look into the word, all right, to experience this freedom through obedience. Isn't that odd? Because we always think to be free means really to be rebellious. And it's the exact opposite in the word. Okay? The rebellion only leads to slavery, to sin and your sinful desires. But to be free is to walk in obedience to God and enjoy this clear conscience. All right? But notice what it begins with. You can't walk in obedience for something that you don't know. You got to start by looking intently into the Word. Then the second step, and he just says it right here. So he says, the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it. Notice this, perseveres in it. And this is the big idea. You can write this, write this down. This is the take home truth. Stay with it. Stay with it. I was talking to my wife about this translation, perseveres in it. And uh, my immediate thought when I read that was we used the word persevere earlier in this chapter. Remember when we talked about persevering under trial? And at first I thought, is it really the exact same Greek word here? And it is and it isn't. It's the same Greek word but with a different prefix. Prefix. So in, in the word for remain or stay is the word minna. In fact, uh, Jesus uses it in John 15. Remember, he says, uh, if, if you abide in me and I abide in you, it's minna. It's, if you stay in me, I'll remain in you. If you remain in me, I'll stay in you. And in perseverance in, the, in chapter 1, the first part, it attached this prefix, which was hupo minna. Hupo means to be under. So when we're under pressure, we're under the trials of life, we're to stay under them. Let them have their perfect work. Remember that? The difference in this prefix here is the idea it's to stay with. It's paramino. Para, like we talk about uh, the Holy Spirit being a paraclete. He comes alongside and counsels and comforts us. So now what we're saying is this, is we're going to stay with the Word of God. Stay with the Word of God. Now here's why that's important. Because there's two ways in which we stay with something. All right? So you can literally listen to me right now or study the scriptures and immediately 
turn away without any impression or intention to obey, and you have already departed from the word. Everybody see how that works? Immediately departed. The other concept of stay with is, listen to this church with generous respect. So what if you stuck with the word early on in your life, but you deviate from it later in life? You still did not what? Stay with. Constantly, I need you, and there's something that I've, uh, maybe one day when there's a lot of free time, okay, I'd love to write a book on just boring Christianity. Boring. Because it's usually that boring Christianity which is the right con. It's this, like, so Josh, you're just telling me what I need to do is to study the Word of God and do it and then just keep doing that over and over and over again until Jesus calls me home. Yes! <laughs> there's no mystery or secret. Like, no, that's it. You're going to subject yourself to the word, look intently to it, find something to obey, and then go out and obey it. And you're going to keep doing it again and again and again. All right? So we stay with it. You're going to have to stay with it as soon as we bow our heads, close our eyes, say amen. You've got to stay with it. And then when you come to the end of your life, hopefully you will never have deviated, but you stuck with it. It perseveres in it. All right? And this last part, notice this is the part in the cycle that's great. All right? Because I know obedience is tough. It's not easy. It says this, this person will be blessed in what he does. Number three, God will bless you. Now, it's so important that we do not read this blessing as completely material blessing. People go, aha! So if I read God's word, study it, and then go do it, I'll be rich or healthy or whatever it is. And it's like you are reading into the text. Two things to note here. Notice that the future tense will be blessed. There's a couple of things commentators always get divided when something gets put into the future tense. Is, is this. Is it an eschatological blessing? Is it a blessing or reward you receive on judgment day? All right? You see how that works? That the reward isn't here. It's for eternity. And I think that's partly true. But here's what I've learned. Usually anything that happens eschatologically, when it, where it happens in the future and completely on judgment day, usually God works that way somehow in part now. In part, not in full. So to bring all the eschatological blessings of heaven into to right here and now is to set you up for complete failure because you'll sit there and go like, I'm not living some blessed life. <laughs> well, that's still future. You see how that works? But there's a part to it where I do believe, I do believe this, church, and you know what I mean. By worldly standards, you may never be blessed by obeying the Word of God. But there are spiritual blessings that you'll never get from the world. And let me just explain it. One of them is this. Think of it, well, there's two I can point to. One is really the, the clear conscience that you can live in. Okay? To be unburdened <laughs> by the grieving spirit and your conscience that just accuses you day and night by living in disobedience to the word. All right, we all know it's that thing that once you've sinned, like five seconds after that, you go, what was I thinking? You can live without experiencing that. There, that's a blessing. And then let's just go ahead and drop it right where it needs to be, ladies and gentlemen. This is the thing that's the most devastating, and this is why he provides such an amazing example. Go back to Ravi. Prior to this what's found, you would have thought Robbie lived a blessed life. 
And by no means. Because think of what happens in the wake of everything that he had done. You have the victims, right? You have his family that he has left in just utter destruction, right? And then the millions, and I don't, I don't even think that's a stretch of people who came to faith through his ministry, and it has given them a, tr- a, a legitimate trial to consider. How can you tell me that somehow his disobedience, that he enjoyed blessing? He didn't. And then this is why there's an eschatological component. He has not given, he was not given, or he did not give the world the opportunity to see any type of repentance or accountability in his life, but there's still one more judgment day. He will not be a blessed man on that day. He won't be. Now, I cannot answer for you whether he's saved or not. I serve a great Savior, all right, whose blood is so precious it can cleanse any of the sin that Ravi did. The question is, was he ever genuinely repentant of it? And if you had to take my discernment on it, I have no reason to believe he was. I really don't. I don't know his heart, but I say there's no actual visible evidence. And it's the most stark thing because, again, you mean to tell me you can know this word and lack repentance. Yes. Yes. I cannot tell you whether he'll be blessed or not. And I trust in his final moments that he came clean with Jesus. That's our only hope. But it's not a blessed life. That's at least it. It's not blessing. It's curse upon curse. Jen Oshman, she wrote this about him, just in the context. And it's not, it's not to rip on him. I think people understand this. What happens is when you occupy such a prominent public pulpit like he had, people are just naturally informed. People want to know, what? How does this happen? Oshman writes this. She says, right teaching does not equal right living. It's the truth. Okay? You can be doctrinally sound. I, I believe you could tell me I repented of my sin, trusted Jesus as my Savior. I believe the Baptist faith and message. I accept the church covenant. And you literally can go out and live however you want. Right? So, right living or right teaching does not equal right living. Zacharias was clearly a gifted thinker and teacher. His books, conferences, and followers point to a man who is able to effectively communicate the truth. Sadly, he did not live by the truth. In an age where we are quick to put Christian celebrities on a pedestal and quick to measure their success by the supposed fruit that we perceived with our finite human understanding, we would do well to remember that giftedness does not equal holiness. Public lives are not always equivalent to private lives. That's the truth. No pastor, author, speaker, teacher, artist, or other public figure is beyond the need for accountability. As Christians, we are, in fact, our brother's keeper. I think she does well. There's a few amazing statements that I've read about him. In fact, uh, the gentleman who's over the Canadian portion of RZIM ministry said this, we were glad or we were happy to accept questions about Jesus, but not about Ravi. None of us are beyond that accountability. Not myself, not you. So right teaching does not just equate right living. In fact, I tell you, as a pastor, it is a lot easier to teach it right, okay, than to live it right. It's just the truth. 
And here's another thing that we need to understand. We have to put the gifts of the Spirit, okay, behind the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit should have a higher premium on the life of ministers than their gifts. Oftentimes, we'll, we'll just sacrifice love, joy, peace, all those things. What? Well, he can preach or he can sing or whatever it is. doesn't matter. It's both and or none. And then Randy Alcorn, it says, and this is the part that, that gets to me, is immorality inevitable? Because at least in my lifetime, and I think it's because of how just social media works, of course, you're going to hear more about the guy who falls, right, than the guy who endured, right? You're gonna, we'll find out the guys who endured on Judgment Day. But the world is fascinated by guys who fall. And so it's easy to get discouraged and to think, well, is it just, are we just all bound to go that way? And Alcorn, I think, just gives good wisdom here. He says, God does not want us to be presumptuous. He doesn't want any of us to say, well, I could never do that. Because the truth is this, I, I would say this, Ravi had a human heart, you have a human heart, you put yourself in similar situations, you just might. Okay, so none of us can be presumptuous, we all have the capacity, all of us are susceptible, no one is morally invulnerable, nobody is that way. And to be clear, that does not excuse Ravi's abuse. I'm just wanting to point out the fact that we got the capacity to do it. And then Alcorn makes an, a, a, the part that encouraged me the, the, the most was this. But neither does God want us to be paranoid. Because at the same time, and we believe this as well, that Ravi is culpable because he made a choice. Just because, this is something that's so hard for our world to understand. Just because you have the capacity doesn't mean you ought to do it. Right? There is still a line that you personally have to cross. And he made a choice. Alcorn writes this, We do not fall into immorality. We walk into it. That's important to note. We walk into it. Indeed, sometimes we run headlong into it. We must realize from the beginning that immorality is a choice. It is not something that happens to people. It is something that people make happen. Right? You have the capacity for it, but you may choose not to do that. And then Alcorn leaves with these texts in Proverbs. Proverbs 4, 14 through 15, he says this, Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. <laughs> Did you see that? Go on your way. Because once you walk down that path, it's hard to come off that path. Here's Proverbs 3, 21 through 26. My son... Preserve sound judgment and discernment. Do not let them out of your sight. They will be life for you. An ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go on your way in safety. And your foot will not stumble. Did you notice that? Won't stumble. You won't fall into it. Right? When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or the ruin that overtakes the wicked. For the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of Israel, will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being snared. Did you notice the difference? The confidence wasn't in the man's good living. It was the fact, I'm going to hold on to the words of Yahweh and do them. And he goes, if you'll just do that, Yahweh will take care of you. <laughs> you don't have to be paranoid. 
If we walk daily with Christ, being alert to what's happening in our minds and implementing steps of righteousness and wisdom, only then we can go our way in safety and not be afraid. Here's what I want you to think about. Ravi's basic sin is widespread. His basic, the fundamental sin is basic. And it will be seen today as sermons are preached all across this land. And what's that basic sin? I mean, think about this. Imagine for just a moment what, what America, okay, would be like if the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of sermons that are preached today were put into practice immediately. Imagine the church just walked out the doors at 12 o'clock today or 12.15, all right, and just said, we're going to do it. We're just going to do it. We're going to do it. Could you imagine what would happen? It's kind of hard to conceive of. But we almost preach with the expectation like, I'm not sure I'm going to do it. I'm not sure they're going to do it. Isn't that messed up? It's the truth. And here's what I was getting at. And that's the most basic fundamental problem. It's not like we're not warned about these things. The scripture addresses them. But it goes in one ear and out the other. We forget who we are. And to turn to our Savior and live in obedience to him. We're all guilty of what it takes. We all are. And so we must stay with it. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. I Please, I, I want you to understand, it's not, um, I'm not here today to point fingers at one person because I do believe that we're susceptible. At the same time, he exemplifies it's sad, you know, he might become one of the best illustrations of this passage, at least from somebody in my lifetime. And it didn't have to be that way. Um, but he made a choice. And so I tell you several things. One, we're all, all of us, there's not, God, God did not send his son just to save people like Ravi. I mean, to save all of us. And what I would tell you, you have more in common with Ravi than you realize. At the same time, we're responsible for our choices. And all of us have sinned against God. All of us have. All right? And so Jesus sent, Jesus came to this world out of love for you to offer you something in pure grace that you can never do. And that's the forgiveness of God to clean slate. Right, to go into heaven and be declared righteous on judgment day. That's a gift. But we come with repentance and faith. We come acknowledging we're sinners and trusting Jesus alone as Savior. And I'm just begging you today. Don't listen to this and just dismiss it. This is the truth of God. So repent. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to lead you in a prayer that you can repeat silently in your heart. There's nothing magical about this prayer. All right, Jesus is a great Savior, and if you'll call upon him for salvation, you will be saved. That's the promise of God. So will you confess this to him? Every head bowed and every eye closed, just say, Dear Jesus, I confess I am a sinner, and I deserve judgment. But I believe you love me. You came to this earth, lived a sinless life, and died on the cross for all my sin. And I believe God raised you from the dead to prove it.
please forgive me. Come into my life and be my Savior and God. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to encourage you that if you prayed that prayer, Jesus teaches us what the next step in discipleship or following him is. And it's going public with this decision to confess our sins and commit our life to Christ. And the way we do that is through baptism. Baptism is when we show the church and the world that we believe in Jesus' death for our sins. When we go under the water and when we come up out of the water, we're saying and, and believing and identifying that we believe in Jesus' resurrection for our forgiveness and eternal life. So I encourage every person, repent and be baptized, right? Take that next step to, to, to take ownership of Jesus as Lord. If you've never been baptized, fill out that tear-off panel Text BELIEVE to our text in church number. Go to our website, fill out the form. Give me a chance just to talk to you about it. The last thing is this, Christian. I want to read this prayer to you. I found it in my study, and I can't quite recall where I got it from. Um, but I thought it encapsulates this passage very good. And I'm just, you, you can see it in your notes. You can keep it, pray it over yourself. But it says this, God who has taught us your divine and saving oracles, your word. Enlighten the souls of us sinners for the comprehension of the things which have been before spoken. But notice why. So that we may not only be seen to be hearers of spiritual things, but also doers of good deeds, striving after guileless faith, blameless life, and pure conversation. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, with whom you are blessed, together with your all-holy, good, and quickening spirit, now and always and forever. I ask King Jesus to make you a doer of the word and stay with it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we are able to hear, uh, to study, to hold your word in our hands is an incredible thing. And Lord, we do see them, uh, as I love how it's thought of, as necessary expressions of your good nature and will. That you've not spoken because, well, I have nothing else to do. You've spoken for our instruction, for our good. You've warned us of what sin can do. And you have called us, beckoned us to obedience to your law of freedom 
And then even went so far to give us a Savior and the Spirit to help us to do that. None of us will stand on Judgment Day and wag our finger at you. We'll have to own up to every sin that we've, that we've done in this body. And God, I pray that you'd cleanse us, that you forgive us and empower us to obey you, Lord, that we can be blessed on that day. Lord, I thank you for every saint who is listening. Lord, for those who've come to repentance and faith in Jesus through the proclamation of your word. We give you great glory for it. Help us to take the next right step in our walk with you today and to go out and be doers immediately, not forgetful hearers. We pray this in Jesus' strong name and all God's people say, amen. All right, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to call ourselves into our, into our business meeting. I want you to know if you're a visitor, we're not going to hold you hostage, all right? If you want to sneak out, you're welcome to do so. Uh, but if you'd like to see how we conduct business, you're welcome to stay as well. Uh, what we're going to do, I do, I just want to ask this uh, before we pass out the ballots, Brother Andrew, the liners got them. Does anyone have any questions uh, about the amendment or, or about this process? Brother Randy, I might need you, man, because he's much more articulate. Go ahead, Brother Randy. Yeah. Yeah, come say something. He's, he's worked more and harder on this than I have, so I want to make sure if you have any questions, you hear from the source. Um, this, I think this uh, particular line has caused maybe some confusion for uh, some people here. Um, so what we're going to do, we're just going to strike this line. Really, it's, it's, um, the line really should have never got in there. And, uh, but anyway, it's on the personnel committee. It's the last um, line down there on the very bottom, the last entry, about to hire a pastor only. Um, the personnel committee will have nothing to do with hiring of, of the pastor or the next-gen pastor whatsoever. Uh, the rest of the bylaws uh, clearly state that that will be done by a pulpit committee. So it's the pulpit committee that will actually take care of all the hirings of all the pastors from this point going forward and has been in the past too. So the, the personnel committee will have nothing to do with the hiring of pastors. So we're going to strike that bottom line out right there on that particular section. It's just, it'll be obsolete, will not go into the bylaws. So is there any questions? Uh, Brother Andrew, you come and uh, pass out the ballots at this time, and uh, I'll give you a couple of minutes to vote, and then we'll, uh, we'll conclude our business meeting, and we'll have our last song and be dismissed.
pens. I know we've, we've taken everything from you. And please, when we finish, you know, exit outside. It's a beautiful day. And take everything with you. All right, make sure you turn them in. Deacons are coming back through. And remember, uh, if this is approved, as stated in the bulletin, uh, it would become effective in the new church year. So it's not effective immediately. It would be effective for, essentially, I think it, the new church year starts in September. That's when it would go live. All right, while they finish up, I'm gonna, that concludes our business. I'm going to say that officially. Uh, just a couple of quick announcements. Don't forget about Miss uh, Sue's um, sis new book, Centurion's Wife, See Her or Cindy. Uh, also, uh, Brother Aaron, he'll, his uh, sermon series continues tonight on We Need to Tell the Truth. That'll be dropped at 6 o'clock tonight. And then for those who were <laughs> kind of with me on Wednesday, my computer, I literally clicked to go live and my computer just crashed. Uh, so there's a couple of things. You, People who are waiting on DVDs this week, you'll need them next week, all right? And, uh, and I finally just, it just wiped everything off my computer, and I've started putting it back on. So it's probably a good thing. I joked with Matt. I said, probably uh, since the pandemic, that was one of the hardest working computers uh, in Habersham County. But anyways, it wasn't meant to do all the things that I've, I've had it to do in the past year. So um, it's all good now. But I should be, Lord willing, should be live uh, this coming Wednesday and we'll do uh, uh, Revelation. It'll be the fifth and sixth seal when I look at the four interpretations, all right? Uh, thank you so much for coming to join us today. And uh, again, we're just here to make much of Jesus. Brother Rick, will you conclude our uh, time of worship together? And so just to remind, saved and unsaved, you are really blessed because of our Savior and our Lord Jesus. And so much more blessed for those that know him and are standing on his promises. Let's stand together. We are so blessed. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.